Hello and welcome again to the Elmtown Podcast. It's your friend Kevin Yank again. Before we get into today's show, I want to thank ElmConf 2018 for sponsoring the hosting and bandwidth for the show. That conference is happening September 26, 2018. Tickets are just $125. You can find all the details at elm-conf.us. If you are anywhere within reach of that conference and uh, haven't already made plans to get there, you definitely should. This is the nexus, the, the, the place where the Elm community comes together. And when our community is... Uh, as young as ours, it's really important that we all get together in one place whenever we can. I have a feeling this is going to be an exciting one, but as I've said before, if I could be there, I totally would, and you should. Our other sponsor today is CultureAmp, my employer. Uh, it's a workday for me. I'm, I'm recording this on company time, and I have to thank CultureAmp for that. CultureAmp builds an employee feedback platform that helps companies collect, understand, and act on employee feedback. We build about half of our front-end code base these days in Elm. If Elm is good at building the thing we need to build, we build it in Elm at the moment. And uh, if you are interested in joining our team, we have front-end roles open. The, the one proviso is that you need to be in or near Melbourne, Australia. So if you're anywhere near our part of the world or would ever consider moving to this part of the world, you should reach out. Head over to cultureamp.com jobs to read about the opportunities available or just hit me up on Twitter. So... Today we are joined by Dhruv Dang. Hi, Dhruv. Hi, Kevin. Why don't you introduce yourself to the people? I am a software engineer. I've been doing this for about 14 years, but I started my career in finance and economics. And wow. uh, yeah, made the switch over to web development and have been focusing on front end for about six years now. You are at a place called Project 6. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually a freelancer and I work with them most of the time. Project 6 is a design agency in the Bay Area. They work with a variety of clients, a lot in education, uh, construction, or any non-technology industry, and we build websites. Right. So what's a typical client for you? A university would be one that's oh, very yeah. common, mm -hmm. um, a construction company, a medical firm, insurance companies. And do you find you're building kind of content-heavy sites as opposed to, to applications? Yeah, CMSs rule that industry quite a bit. <laughs> yep. I'm going to quote you out of context as saying CMSs rule. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you're right, though. They do rule that industry. Yeah, so Project 6 does most of their work with Drupal. Right. And you typically work on the front end of those projects? Right, right. So at the time that I started working with them, it was um, at the beginning of a transition from server-rendered HTML to single-page apps. Yeah, wow. Even even these kind of content CMS-like sites are moving into the single-page app way of doing things. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of hard work and it's challenging, but once the infrastructure is set up and the build process, it's it ends up with a really good product. What do you find drives that sort of um, more complex architecture? Is it... Is it a user experience thing? Or is there certain aspects of the user experience that can only be achieved by kind of owning the routing within the, the client side? I think that's a, that's a really tough question to answer for most companies because it, it really depends on the culture of the company. With agency work, you know, cost is usually the ruling factor. You know, clients typically want a lot, um, but they have budgetary, budgetary restrictions that we have to work with. 
And you know, we can all build the most perfect single page application, but it may not fit within a budget. I think that the reason that we chose Elm for the Project 6 site was to be able to showcase what is possible on the web because there are clients that or people that want to have this great user experience and uh, we were able to do that with our own site. We had a team of great engineers working on it as well so it was a, it was a real joy to get it out. And so Elm I mean, spoiler alert, this is an Elm site we're talking about. You can go and check it out at project6.com. Um, it's really eye-catching. There's a, there's a lot of um, really impressive design, and um, it, it is very responsive. And what made you choose Elm for it? I guess the story really follows how I got into Elm. I first heard about Elm back in 2015, and you know, it's only, I guess, three years ago. But the reason that I'd heard about it is because I'd started a new job at the time at Apple and I was, I was learning a lot about the culture. So the company ran these internal courses uh, in, in a division called Apple University. And one of the mantras of working there is, you know, you, you should do your best work. Like every day or every year, you should be able to look back and say you did your best work. And in pursuit of that and trying to understand that better, I looked around in the front end community and tried to research to see what the tools were to be able to do that. Mm. And it seemed like there was a lot of interest in Elm. And at that time, Elm was a little bit different to, from what it is today. Yeah, I was going to say uh, that it was a very different landscape back then. Yeah, I, th I think I approached it from a mindset of learning. You know, I, at that time, the Elm architecture itself was a huge innovation for me. And the role that Elm played back then for about two years, I'd say, is more as a tool for learning and improving my JavaScript front-end applications. So what we would do is run a bunch of brown bags and uh, try to share this knowledge with our teammates and our friends. And uh, it worked out really well because we would apply a lot of the principles of the Elm architecture in our JavaScript applications, especially as um, React was picking up. So even though back then it would have been a big ask to try to adopt Elm uh, at Apple while you were there, you were using it more as a, a source of inspiration for what quality looks like on the front end. That's right, yeah. Organizing an application in a way that can grow sustainably you know, with, with requirements as they change over time. And uh, I think at that time it was difficult to build a big front end application and you know, feel confident and proud of your work. But yeah, it, yeah the Elm architecture, it definitely gave me a different experience that I hadn't had before. Things were growing in a very harmonious way. So when uh, commands and subscriptions entered the scene and, and there was a routing library and some navigation tools available from, uh, from the core Elm team, it suddenly became a lot more viable for a full single page application because uh, those were the things that were really holding back the adoption for a bigger project. So when Evan announced that uh, that Elm was leaving uh, functional reactive programming behind, uh, you were one of the people who thought, yes, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm not an expert in functional reactive programming, so I might not. Neither am I. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's part of the challenge, right? Yeah. There aren't a lot of experts in FRP out there, and that in itself made a, a, a language, a framework based around those ideas uh, more challenging to get into. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think UI development in functional programming, I don't, there's not really much out there, but in object-oriented, there, there are a ton of frameworks. 
and not just for the web, for your mobile devices as well. So there really isn't much to choose from. So I think, I think that Evan was really breaking new ground to a certain extent. And what I really liked about the transition was it was a move towards simplicity. Mm. One of the most charming features, I think, about the whole community and, and the way that Elm is set up with its packages is it's so inviting for someone that isn't a functional programmer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, that's one of the things that I suppose this mirrors your experience. It's one of the things that made me feel like I could roll this out to a team that had previously been doing uh, React, for example. Yeah, definitely. And and that was a huge dis- deciding factor in using Elm or advocating for Elm for the Project 6 site. It was one of the questions that I often hear when discussing this with managers or or decision-making teams about what technology to use for a single-page app is about you know attrition in the team. What if the core developer leaves? Or what if the advocate for this leaves? And I think that Elm has gotten to a point where it's, it's pretty easy to bring people up to speed relative to other functional languages because the community and the documentation is there to support it. Yeah. I'm still fascinated by your your use of Elm as a source of inspiration because we hear about these really successful frameworks like Redux in the JavaScript world, and it it also cites Elm circa 2015 as a source of inspiration. To hear that Elm was maybe not an attractive tool to go, yes, let's let's build our production app with this, but it was still a really big source of inspiration for production code bases. Um, that's really cool to hear. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a huge part of my development as a programmer. Eventually, you ended up being able to use Elm, modern Elm, at Project 6. Were there any other steps in between on your journey with Elm? Yeah, there was. Um, we One of the projects that we'd worked on was the CrossFit Games website. So CrossFit is an international fitness company, and every year they have uh, this games event where a lot of their members will compete in various activities. One of the aspects of that project was it was a very old PHP website, ah. and it was using an old version of an MVC framework where all the HTML was rendered server-side. And uh, one of the most important pages of that website the games website was the leaderboard. And a lot of CrossFit's members are very passionate, so a lot of people end up competing. And what they'll do is just re- refresh the leaderboard you know, every few minutes to wait for their scores to come up. So it needed to be a lot faster than what it was. Um, the logic needed to be running client-side as well. So it would ingest a JSON API from a backend. So the, the page would load from the server with kind of this blank space in the middle of it, and then your JavaScript would bring that to life. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And that ended up being written in JavaScript, but we actually wrote a very small uh, framework, if you will. It's not really a framework that used the Elm architecture. So it, it followed the uh, init update view cycle and used a really basic event bus to manage the render loop. And that was, uh, I think that was where the hypothesis got proven right, that the architecture made sense, because the requirements changed a lot over the course of a year, and the scope grew quite significantly, but the code was uh, very manageable in that time. So then the, uh, the Project 6 site project came along, and you decided this is it. This is the right 
project to introduce Elm. How did you get to that decision? Yeah, I think uh, it boiled down to the requirements. You know, we, we wanted to make a site that was really fast. It felt like a native app or a native experience. And the route transitions were a big part of that. And it definitely could have been implemented with a non-Elm single-page app framework. But we, uh, we decided to go with Elm because of the type system. And, you know, there are a lot of benefits with type safety that I'm sure have been discussed uh, many times. But one of the aspects was uh, the fact that we probably wouldn't come back to the code base for months at a time. Yeah. You know, it would probably just sit there for a long time because it's the content that's changing, not the actual UI or the UI logic. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to come back and have this compiler tell us if we'd done something that was wrong that we'd just simply forgotten about some of the rules. Yeah. And uh, that was a huge driver. I mean, the, the mainstream JavaScript industry, it, it seems to be adopting um, progressive type systems like Flow or TypeScript in JavaScript code bases to, to crack that nut. Did you consider those solutions at all? Did you rule them out? I've used React, Redux, and Flow before in the same yep. app. And I definitely considered that. They're really great libraries. And I think that Redux does share a lot of the values of Elm. It's just that JavaScript is a language because it's a dynamic language. We're basically making a compromise on things like type level safety. Um, there are a lot of uh, great features that come with a language like Elm, uh, one being like phantom types or extensible records. Mm. And uh, it's really hard to express that in JavaScript. You know, and even though we get some compile time guarantees or analysis guarantees on the types we're using Flow, it wouldn't be the same as Elm where it's first class support. Yeah, definitely. So I am interested in comparing notes with you on um, what happened next, because I think that the day you decide to build something in Elm, um, there is the, the journey leading up to that decision, and then there is um, how that goes. It's, it's not as simple as just saying, all right, we're building a thing in Elm. Everyone use Elm. How did that go for you? You know, I'm, I'm smiling because you've definitely been through this before because <laughs> <laughs> a week later it was like a crisis of confidence. <laughs> yep. Fortunately, everything worked out and, you know, the site's live and working well. Uh, there were a few stumbling blocks. I think with Elm as a whole, it was great. You know, the front-end aspect of the project was, was under budget. There were some external dependencies that impacted how we set up our application. Um, so there's actually a node server that sits on the back end um, getting data from Drupal because Drupal is still used as the authoring environment for all the content. Right, but you've built a little back end for your front end that talks to Drupal. That's right. And it was created for more, more, as in, more to transform uh, data from Drupal into clean JSON that we can then use JSON decoders for in Elm and it allowed yeah. us to have be independent of the authoring environment. So it was always consuming this data and it was cached as well. So it was really fast and not dependent on the speed of the Drupal server. It was um, the solution that we came upon after actually starting the project because we weren't sure what to do because we knew that the Drupal API would change often and would have a lot of data that we didn't need. Because oh, right. So you had considered writing Elm that would talk directly to the Drupal API. Right. And it, it wasn't, I would love to say that, you know, we had all this foresight to decide 
to do the service so we get better performance and caching but honestly that wasn't the motiva- motivating factor it was really how can we reduce churn in the code base and working with json where you don't have control of the exact structure of the payload javascript's a better tool for that uh, by virtue of all the things that um, i tend not to like of javascript there's no type system it's dynamic so i could simply just take the things i needed and create a json, uh, JSON database as it were yep um, whereas the elm code the decoders would stay the same it's kind of like we be using that server to create a type for all the backend data yeah neat we're doing a similar pattern at CultureAmp with our front ends and back ends is that we're architecting with a specialized back end for each of our front end code bases and we're talking about it as a, a compatibility layer or what I've heard termed as an anti-corruption layer mm-hmm. it's a it's a place to buffer against change that's awesome yeah I think that's a great pattern and it creates a lot of sanity in the long run. Mm. So how did you go about getting your team up to speed and bought into Elm as a tool? So it was a pretty uh, small team. It was three engineers, and in- that includes myself. Mm-hmm. One was on Drupal and the other one was on the front end with me. Uh, those other engineers, had they had exposure to the concepts of the Elm architecture on those previous projects with you? Uh, the other front end developer, Andrew, did. And he actually did a great job. So when he was re- researching Elm, he got about um, up to the counter example in the guide where you create a counter. Yes. And sort of didn't have time to get back to Elm. And then this project came along and you know we decided to work together on it. And I would say that he hadn't built anything in Elm for production in the past, but picked it up really quickly. Okay. Um, that might be uh, partly because you know, he's a super smart guy the other part is Elm is really easy to learn as well. So I think for a project where he hadn't done anything in Elm before, having the guidance for someone to set up you know, the repositories and the structure of the application, the overall architecture, it was really helpful. But because of the type system, he had basically the compiler guiding him as he was developing. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking to our experience at Cultramp where we first introduced Elm into a similarly small team it wasn't the lead. It wasn't the front end lead in that team, but we also had this advocate for Elm in the team who had enough experience with it in side projects or previous experience that they were able to act as a guide for the rest of the team. So that when a team member went, "Hey, I don't understand what the compiler is telling me," or more often, "Hey, I have a feature in mind, but I don't have a concept of how that." is implemented in the M architecture, that engineer could answer those questions. Did you find yourself filling that role as kind of like the the guide or the stack overflow for the engineer who is learning Elm next to you? Yeah, I, I think that I was a sounding board for a lot of questions and um, it was a lot like rubber duck debugging. <laughs> so a lot of the time <laughs> someone would explain their problem to me and, and figure out the solution without me providing any input. Yeah, um, but honestly, it was uh, a lot of the a lot of the time there would be problems that we both didn't know how to solve, and simply being able to talk through it and think about the types first and how the data looked uh, helped us arrive at a clean solution quicker. So I would say that because our team had really good principles of communicating and empathizing with each other, it was uh, very easy to get everyone up to speed at the same level. 
So do you think this could have, this, this shift to Elm could have happened uh, without you being the lead of that team? Or was it your position of leadership in that team that let you make that decision and then, um, I'm going to say deal with the consequences, but I guess manage the transition is maybe a more positive way of putting it? Yeah, I, I think someone needed to take the risk. In this case, I held a lot of responsibility for the decision. Mm. Um, uh, the other developers had weighed in and were pretty happy with the choice, but they weren't the ones taking the risk, I would say. Um, and the nice thing is we, like we've had, collectively we would had enough experience with Elm to have uh, the minimum amount of belief that we would be able to execute on this successfully. So when it came to uh, pushing this to be the right tool for the job, we had enough confidence. Um, but I did feel uh, it was like I, I really was driving it on my own for the beginning. But because uh, Andrew, the other developer, had some experience with Elm, he was also an advocate. You mentioned your crisis of confidence a week in. Was it, did it feel like a decision that was made and there was no going back? Or was there a period during which it was like, this is an experiment, we can change our minds? Um, it was, I think we had the option to change our minds, but uh, I think we really wanted it to work. We wanted to believe in Elm being a, a tool that works for these kinds of apps. And um, the challenge was that there's a lot more to the entire project than just the Elm code. Yeah. You know, and we needed to make everything work together well while maintaining the principles of functional programming across the stack. So safety and purity. Mm. And uh, that was pretty challenging because there was a lot of ambiguity there. But once we'd sort of chipped away at the problem a little bit every day, that ambiguity disappeared and we became more confident. Right. I guess one of the questions that gets asked a lot in the Elm community is how can I convince my company to use Elm? And it sounds like like a simple reading of your story would be that you had to wait until you were in charge and then you made the decision you wanted. But I think thinking deeper about it, there were there was groundwork that was done before you made that decision. You were doing brown bags and sharing what Elm was with your team. You were experimenting with the Elm architecture in JavaScript and building some familiarity with those concepts so that if and when you did adopt Elm as a team, it wasn't a completely alien environment. Um, it Does that ring true to you that, that there was the, the, the decision when it came to it felt easier because of the non-decision stuff you had done beforehand? Yeah, definitely. Like I needed to have uh, faith in my, my interest in Elm and my desire to work in it before I was able to uh, show it to other people, especially non-technical stakeholders in the project, so people that aren't coders. The other aspect of it is uh, that it's a risk for everyone. You know, it's, yeah. it's not just a risk. It wasn't just a risk for me. It was a risk for the CEO of the company, uh, the product manager, and the other two developers. And anything that we can do to minimize that risk leading up to that project is, is probably the most valuable thing when adopting a language like Elm where the community is much smaller than the JavaScript community. Mm -hmm. So the question that I had to ask was, 
you know, what's the worst case scenario? If we, if we use Elm and it actually works and we go to production, you know, what's the biggest downside? And it really boiled down in this case to hiring other people to work on the project. You know, ah. So if I moved on or if Andrew moved on and we needed more developers or the, pro the scope group blew up and we needed to hire more people, what was going to happen? And uh, the thing that came to mind from an agency perspective is when you hire contractors, with JavaScript, it's a really large pool of people to hire, but it's hard to find someone great. But with Elm, it might be a much smaller pool, but if they know Elm, the likelihood that they're a great developer is much higher. I've told the story about how we adopted Elm at Caltramp before on this show many episodes ago when I was on as a guest, but uh, uh, it parallels, so I'll just recap it here again quickly because it parallels your experience as well. We had a new member of the team join. His name's Marcos. He's still at Caltramp today. He joined the company and he had been experimenting with Elm in his spare time. And just like yourself, we had this practice of running lunchtime brown bags where people share their experiments, their interests, whether work-related or not. And Marcos pretty immediately started running a, a, a handful of brown bags about Elm. There was like the first one where it was like, what is Elm anyway? And then the next one was kind of showing off the compiler feedback and, and what the Elm architecture looked like. And our front end engineers came along to that and were, were interested. They had questions like, how do you do CSS in this? That we all kind of walked away puzzling and, and trading theories about. And so Elm was something that had been talked about at Cultramp and that some people who were really interested in it were dabbling with in their spare time. But eventually along came a project in our team that was kind of green fields. And Marcos said to me, who was the tech lead of that team at the time, he said, what are the chances of us breaking from the pack and instead of using React like the other teams, building this in Elm? Uh, is that even possible? And as the tech lead, the, the really safe choice, the risk minifying choice, as you put it, would have been to do what everyone else is doing, stick with React and uh, go forward. But I also knew that I didn't know enough about Elm to make that decision with confidence, that I was, if I made that decision, it would be out of ignorance and out of fear. And I said, well, how could we run an experiment so that we can make this decision well? And to your point of like, what is the downside? What is the potential downside that we can accept? I said, let's run an experiment where you, Marcos, you go and build a screen in React, pushing you out of your comfort zone. And I'll go and write a screen in Elm, pushing me out of my comfort zone. And we will compare notes after two weeks. And after two weeks, he said, yep, I've built this thing in React. I still prefer Elm. And I said, well, I'm head over heels in love with Elm. Uh, <laughs> I hope we can use it for everything from now on. And the worst case scenario was we would have burned one person's time for two weeks in the team if it had gone absolutely horribly. But the, the upside was that we, it has completely changed the way we do front-end engineering at Cultramp for the better. To your point on hiring, I, that was a concern for me as well. But something Richard Feldman told me was that uh, when No Red Ink switched to Elm and started uh, publicizing itself as working in that space, that 
more than anything else they have ever done in their history, unlocked the floodgates of uh, front-end candidates. And to your point, high-quality front-end candidates for their hiring process. And it can be it can be scary to 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 make yourself different from all the other employers out there, but. I think to a certain extent, you have to be different from all the other employers out there if you're going to attract anyone, because people need to have a reason to choose you over someone else. Definitely. And I'm curious to know how that project that you worked on with Marcos went. The project went great. We, uh, the only screen of that project that got built in React was the one that Marcos built in that first two weeks. Everything else we ended up building in Elm. That's great. I, I think the, uh, the points that you mentioned about hiring and and just opening the floodgates using no red ink as an example is uh, quite encouraging, <laughs> you know, to hear yeah. that. Like we're a much smaller team, and you know, to know that that rings true, I find that my conversations with other Elm developers are great. You know, people are, are just so much more passionate about learning um, than I found with um, those that tend to specialize with like the most popular framework today. Mm. I mean, to your point of what happens if the advocate for Elm leaves, I think people leave less when you let them have a bit of freedom with their technology choices to choose things that challenge them, that they give them opportunities to learn. I mean, you don't want to go too far down that extreme, but I feel like in, in my case, if I had said no to Marcos, even money, he wouldn't be with Cultramp anymore because... Um, he was looking for me as a leader to to invest in his his learning, his development, also to kind of trust his judgment enough to to consider Elm as a possibility. And as a leader, if you shut those things down in the name of minimizing risk, uh, I think you 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 amplify to a great deal those risks of those key team members leaving. Right, and do you do you feel in that learning and development context that if Marcos hadn't come to you with Elm, but you knew he had this interest, would it be something that you would recommend to him, or would it have needed to have come from him? In that case, it would have needed to have come from him because I didn't know enough about Elm to advocate for it myself. Okay, I I think as a as a technical leader, I'm not realistically. I'm not going out of my way to find ways to add variety to our stack. Yeah, makes sense. <laughs> Cultramp was a fast-growing company, and yeah. all things being equal, we needed to to optimize for consistency so that right. people could move between teams, so that people could uh, share skills. Um, and so, yeah, if Marcos had never raised it, I, I'm pretty sure um, we wouldn't have looked at Elm at all. Wow, hey, that's a great reason to for developers to, I guess, share their interests with the team. Yeah, and the happy ending of that story is that today, Marcos is the tech lead of that team. Oh, wow. Uh, and so he gets to make the decisions when his engineers come to him with new ideas. Oh, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> so were there any, did you have any other thoughts about um, how leadership played into the story with Elm at Project 6? Um. One thought that came to mind was about managing expectations. Oh, yeah. So I guess it's a, sort of a very common phrase to hear in any leadership discussion. But in this particular case, we were sort of going out on a limb with a new piece of technology. 
it was we needed to set expectations that it wasn't like a magic pill that would solve all problems with all front end applications ever. Yeah. Um, so when selling Elm, we had to say, you know, there are great things we can do with animation, um, with maintainability. You know, the, there have been no runtime exceptions since the site launched earlier this year. Um, we had our first one just a couple of weeks ago. Oh wow! Um, uh, I I occasionally dip into our our JavaScript error stream and have a look at what's going on. And I noticed for the first time an error in an Elm module. And when I drilled into it, it was a user who had a Chrome extension that was mutating the DOM that Elm had rendered. And then when Elm came back to try to change that DOM, it wasn't the way it had left it and Elm exploded. Oh, I see. Uh, so, Definitely not our fault. <laughs> yeah. if, you, if you use bad Chrome extensions, you deserve what you get. Um, <laughs> but it was, uh, it was a milestone for us. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine the feeling when you see that area. You're like, no, is it all a lie? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. So you were talking about managing expectations and the fact that you, you made a point of not painting Elm as the solution to all problems. Are you saying that today at Project 6, you would not choose Elm for every project yet? Um, it's definitely not the tool for every job. You know, one other consideration is SEO yep. for content-heavy sites. And with all single-page applications, that's a bit difficult because of um, client-side rendering and asynchronous data being loaded before a crawler might be able to see it. Mm. Um, so for simple sites, I'd probably not recommend it. But there are occasional projects that come by where you need to do something very complicated. And Elm might be the right tool to be able to embed a component on that page for a statically generated site. Or it might be the right tool for a full application, depending on what it is. Um, but you know, I think it's a step in the right direction. So when we, when we were talking about Elm and thinking about the benefits versus the uh, disadvantages, it was really boiling down to this makes sense for this project, you know, and it's a step in the right direction. So how did you deal with those SEO trade-offs on the Project 6 site project? Um, so we use headless Chromium right now. It's, I wouldn't say it's an imperfect solution, but there is room for improvement. Uh, one of the downsides of um, deploying a single page app, and I think this is ubiquitous to everything without server-side rendering, is it's hard to just use a CDN. Things like push state routing become a main concern, um, and how we do 404 handling, as well as uh, sitemap generation and SEO. So we actually built a separate node server just to deploy uh, the UI, and it was deployed using Zite. So Zite is, sits behind a CDN and does things like automatic compression of assets. And we built it in such a way that it was stateless so we could horizontally scale it up. And uh, that worked out really well. So we ended up working well with Google, Facebook, Twitter, and Bing. You mentioned headless Chromium. Talk me through how that's working. Do you mean to say that you you are running a headless Chromium in your build process and using it to run the Elm app capture some static or, or server-rendered HTML that you then serve uh, in production, or am I misunderstanding? Uh, so it's just for crawlers. So it's a, it's a very uh, difficult line to walk because um, 
it's important that we show the same thing to our end users as we do to bots of large companies. Um, so what we do is we do render static HTML by using Headless Chromium just for the crawlers. Because right, not, so you recognize those user agents and feed, feed those requests to your, your uh, Headless Chromium setup. That's right. And because we're caching all the data from Drupal, uh, we actually cache those HTML pages as well in our server. So it doesn't affect the rest of the app if there are a bunch of crawler requests at a given time. Um, the other aspect of it is it's business as usual for an end user. You know, they get a minimal HTML page, and Elm takes care of the rest once it's all loaded. But it was a bit challenging to set it up, but we have a Docker container that will uh, do that for us. So it loads Headless Chromium, and we have our own node library that calls out to that. That's a fascinating solution. I have, I have not heard of that approach, where you actually have kind of a, a live browser acting as a proxy for the thing that can't run Elm itself. The server is really minimal for the UI. We have one function that calls out to Chromium, does the rendering, uh, because there, are some, there is an asynchronous request when a page loads. So each page has something called a block, which is a JSON blob that has all the static content for the page. And that request happens on the client side. So we needed Chromium to render that on its side as well, but there was a race condition. So we needed to do some research on the flags and figure out how to configure it properly. And that was probably the most time-consuming part because it wasn't well documented. The race condition being um, having headless chromium wait long enough for the data to be fetched asynchronously and rendered in the page before it it took its snapshot that it responded to the crawler with. Yeah, that's right. And we were getting temperamental results. So some results would have the HTML and it looked great, but other times it wouldn't. And the challenge uh, with that was we were basically calling a bash command with command line flags. But those command line flags to manage that race condition weren't actually documented. So we ended up having to use an official node package, which allowed us to do that. Yeah, cool. Yeah. This sounds like a really valuable solution that uh, you'll be able to apply to future Elm projects. I wonder, do you feel like it's in any sort of fit state to share with the community more broadly? Uh, I would love to share it with the community. One thing that I might be able to do is set up a blog post, and I've been thinking about it for a while. Dhruv, if I twist your arm and ask if you might be able to write that blog post in time for this episode to go live, do you think I could put a link to it in the show notes? Oh, I, I don't think I can say no to you, Kevin. <laughs> All right. Listeners, check out the show notes. If the link is there, Dhruv came through in spades, and I'll be reading that post eagerly along with the rest of you. So where, where does all of this experience leave you with Elm now? It, does it feel like a, a successful experiment? It sounds like it, it does. Yeah, it, it, um, it really worked out well. You know, and uh, I feel very grateful for being able to use it in a very fortunate position where, you know, going back to risk, people usually aren't willing to take those kinds of risks, especially with their businesses. Mm. And I think it paid off really well. Our search index, search engine rankings are higher. Our performance on mobile is better. Um, the site is a great experience and we've gotten a lot of good feedback from it. And it wouldn't have been possible without Elm uh, in the time that we did it with the few engineers that we did have. So I'm really happy with how it turned out. That's amazing. And I, I predict that you're going to find that it has a positive impact on your hiring as well. That's been our experience at Cultramp big time. I think... You, the other thing you've got going for you is 
what you said before about Elm not being the solution to every problem, not being the right choice for every project, that's still where we are with Elm at CultureAmp as well. And I think that works really well for us in hiring because we can we can write a job ad that says, hey, if you know React, come and use those skills here. And you'll also get to learn and work with some Elm too. If we had, for whatever reason, tried to eradicate React as a tool that we use at CultureAmp and then went all Elm, we might cut ourselves off from that advantage. Yeah, I think that's a great strategy to have because it meets other developers where they are. Because who knows, yep. someone might be a React developer today and they might love Redux. But then being able to experience and experiment with Elm uh, could serve them well as w in the future too. At CultureAmp, we get to see a lot of statistics about what um, what causes engineers to change jobs or to stay in their existing job. And the top one is belief in leadership. But the second one close behind is that they feel that they have opportunities to grow and learn new things and be challenged. And uh, offering people the opportunity to learn Elm on the job, I think is a, a great incentive for people to consider a new role with your company. That's awesome. Yeah. It's really nice to compare adoption stories. I, I want to I wanna do more episodes like this on Elmtown because I feel like these stories are valuable for people like you and me to learn from each other, but also really valuable for people in the community who are at the start of this journey. And as I said before, wrestling with the question of how do I get Elm into my company? Yeah, it's, it's definitely a tough spot to be in, right? Because they're at the outset of all these potentially great things to happen without experiencing that yet. It was definitely very, it's very humbling to hear the other Elmtown episodes and to be here just as an adopter, not a library writer or uh, an intense developer. <laughs> well, I think that blog post, if you get it live, could be a huge contribution to the community. Awesome. Yeah, I, uh, you've given me the motivation to do it. So I'm going to do my best to get it done on time. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you for joining us in Elmtown today, Dhruv. Dhruv's email address will be in the show notes. Reach out to him if you have any questions about Project 6 or their experience with uh, catering for search engine crawlers in an Elm app. Really amazing stuff. Thanks again for listening to Elmtown, and we'll be back in two more weeks with another episode. From Kevin and Dhruv, bye for now. Bye.